You're listening to a podcast from River City Church of Jacksonville, Florida. For more audio and video podcasts, visit rccjacks.com. Lewis Neiser, who I think, I don't know who he is, but he says this. I'm just being honest. I, I remember I, I, when I read the quote, I looked it up on Google and I forgot. A man who works with his hands is a laborer. A man who works with his hands and his brain is a craftsman. But a man who works with his hands and his brain and his heart is an artist. Helen Keller says, The most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. I only rap reality. There's no reality to celebrity. I'm never too good for anything. I'm just reacting what my soul tells me to do. I will die... For what's in my heart, Kanye West. Dude, you laugh. He potentially is the greatest poet speaking words into the hearts and minds of our youth right now. He is. He is. If you don't believe me, just go look at the billboard. Go look at whatever. He is a poet that is scripting truth in his mind to our youth right now on the canvas of their heart. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, in art, the hand can never execute anything higher than the heart can imagine. I love that. In art, the hand can never execute anything higher than the heart can imagine. Ralph Waldo Emerson, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus Christ. The heart, our heart, is at the heart of all that matters to God. And therefore, it is also what the enemy seeks to infiltrate and to use to confuse us and destroy us. I love the quote by, Wolf, by Ralphie here. In art, the hand can never execute anything higher than the heart can imagine. I love that quote because it paints a picture that I think is so true and parallels our journey as disciples of Jesus Christ. I think what Ralph is getting at is that you can be a great student of a particular art, really developed in your art, practice the skills of your art, but it is only your heart that gives life to what you create. It is from the heart that your passion flows from the paintbrush onto a canvas. It is from your heart that melodies and harmonies are written that bring life and hope to others. But true art, true art brings life to others, restores hope, encourages people, brings life. The reason we love art, real art, is because it changes us. It causes us to develop deep emotions, consider great possibilities, inspire us to dream. That's why we go to concerts. That's why we love movies. That's why we go to plays, musicals, museums, and the Riverside Arts Market. Because we love to be inspired. We love to have people challenge us. We love to see life reflected in a way that's beautiful. The same is true for discipleship. We can learn the right things to do. We can learn the craft and the methods and the methodologies methodologies of what it looks like 
to do the things that Jesus did. We can be very disciplined in prayer, reading the Bible, worship, serving the poor. But the measure of whether we are alive or not is what's happening in our heart. Is God the one transforming us? You see, God is the perfect artist, the first creator, the ultimate creator, molding us, desiring to shape us, form us, and paint on the canvas of our hearts his story. That's what we are created for. It's for God to position us, to call us to himself so that in us and through us, he will paint a picture to the world that reflects his beauty, his glory, his power, his design for his creation. That's what you're designed for. That is only reflected to the world as he sculpts you, as he works on your heart and all the effort that you put into it to be a disciple, to work Hard at earning his love, affection, to be disciplined, to be moral, to be ethical. If you're not careful, you will actually work against his created design. The heart, our heart, like I said earlier, is the heart of all that matters to God. And because of that, you better believe that the enemy is trying to get in there to create chaos, to create confusion, and to trick you into believing that the cross is not enough. That yes, we might believe in Jesus Christ, that he's come to rescue us, that he saved us from slavery, from our sin, from our brokenness, from our trespasses, from our evil doing, but really when it comes to changing us, the continual process of changing us, the cross just isn't enough, Antley. So you better not drink that, you better not eat that, you better go to church, you better not read, you better read this, don't read that, don't go to that movie, better go to this movie, because it's Jesus plus those things that leads to discipleship, that leads to your sanctification, which is a holy word for meaning your growth in Jesus Christ. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. And when you ascribe to those things, you kill your heart. When you ascribe those things, you shut out the work and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he accomplished on the, on the cross for you. You either believe that the cross is enough for all of your life to be transformed, or you don't. You either believe that the cross is enough to transform our church, or you don't. And if you don't believe it, then you believe that it's Jesus plus you and whatever you're doing that will lead to holiness. What you eat, what you drink, how much you pray, how much you read the Bible. The litmus test is whether in your relationship with God do you feel guilt, do you feel shame, do you feel he is in the process of transforming and creating this beautiful design out of your life that he is in control of, that he is leading you in, that is filled with risk, that is filled with adventure, that is filled with faithfulness that comes from his love for you. It's a very subtle and small difference. It would be something like this. You're walking in the mall and there are stairs and there's an escalator. If you choose, they look the same, right? They're shaped the same, right? One requires you to walk up to get to the place that you feel you need to go based on, you know, 
using your ability, your strength, your power to get there, right? That's the stairs. That's legalism. That's you believing that it's up to you to get to where you need to go so that God will love you. The other's the escalator. Oh, look it. This is where God's going. This is where he wants to take me. I need to participate in that, so I'll take the first step and get on. Look at there. I'm moving, not under my power, but under God's power to the place that God wants me to go. Subtle difference. But a reality that if we don't get it right, we will work against God in our individual lives and in the life of our church, creating barriers for us to jump over to gain God's love and approval and creating barriers for each other to jump over to be a member of our church. That's legalism. That's exactly what the Colossian church is dealing with when Paul writes this letter. It's why last week I spent so much time, energy, and effort on my surfboard analogy telling you, convincing you, this is where it begins. It begins with you trusting Jesus, trusting that he is the one that will give you the ride of your life, that he is the one that was created to be your foundation, to dig your roots into and to find life from, that he is the one, he is the only one that can allow you to become the surfer, the disciple that you were created to be. And the fruit of that life is joy, not burden. It's happiness, not guilt. It's freedom, not condemnation and shame. We don't know all the details of what the Colossian church is struggling with. But I'm going to run through this next passage. And this is like a defensive posture that God's calling us to, that Paul's calling to the church to. Next week is offense. This is what you need to do. Here's the escalator you need to step on. This week it's, here's the, here's the, here, here are the stairs that they're calling you to climb that you shouldn't, that are making you feel judged, making you feel like you're disqualified, making you feel like you have to earn God's love and affection for you. That's what this section is about. I'm just going to unpack this as we go through it. It says this, Colossians 2, 16 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or regard or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So what he's saying here is there are these false teachers. Don't let them judge you and make you believe that if you drink this or don't drink that, or if you eat this or don't eat that, that you're less of a Christian, that you're less of a follower of Christ. Or when it comes to religious holidays. Some of these were Jews, some of these were Gentiles. They were, basically, the false teachers were saying to them, hey, I know you are Jewish, and now you're following Christ. You still need to participate in these ritualistic ceremonies. You still need to participate in these, in these certain behaviors if you want to be a member of the church. Colossia. That's what they're saying here. And Paul's saying, no, no. Don't let them judge you based on those things. You've been freed from those things. You've been set free from those things. Those, are things are, those things are just a shadow. They're a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Have you ever been waiting for someone sitting on a bench? And you're waiting for them, you're waiting for them, you're waiting for them, and then all of a sudden you see their shadow kind of approaching you, and you know that they're on their way, right? You're kind of like, oh, they're here. That's awesome. Well, what if the shadow 
never got there, you'd be like, well, that, I, I'm not waiting for the shadow. I'm waiting for the person. You'd be disappointed, wouldn't you? Well, what Paul's saying is this. He's like, quit acting like the shadow is what it's all about. All the rules, all the regulations, all the laws were just a foreshadowing a preemptive opportunity for you to see what the life will come in Jesus Christ. But Christ has come. He is here. So why are you enjoying the shadow still? That's silly. There's no substance in a shadow. There's no person in a shadow. There's no life in the shadow. There's no life in following ritualistic ceremonies. There's no life going to be found in the food you drink, the food that you eat or the drink that you drink. There's no life that's going to be found in gathering in a ceremony. Those are a shadow. Life is in Christ, in Christ alone. We just got out that section from last week. Let no one, he goes, so don't let anyone judge you. And he goes, don't let anyone disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism. That's like denying your body certain things that God created for your body. Okay, so things like fasting could fall under that. You know, and, and uh, uh, if you saw the, uh, the uh, what was the, the movie where they, um, uh, the Tom Hanks movie, Da Vinci Code, where the guy, remember he had a strap on his leg and he would create pain, he would, he would create pain. He would make his body feel pain to remember the sin, how bad he was. He was a bad person. Bad person, crank it down. I know I'm a bad person. I want to remember how sinful I am. That's asceticism. Removing ourselves from the world. The monks were ascetics. And there's nothing wrong in and of that. But when we put that as a hurdle to receiving the blessings of Christ or being loved by God, then they become driven out of our ability as opposed to being led and transformed by the Spirit. And so they're saying, don't disqualify you. Don't let them disqualify you. Insisting on this asceticism, these behaviors, and the worship of angels, or if they start going into detail about visions puffed up with pride without reason for his sensuous mind, by his sensuous mind. So he's saying, don't be disqualified by these teachers who are telling you things that, are, that don't matter, that don't relate to you. There aren't prerequisites for being in the church. There aren't prerequisites for being with Christ. He is the head. If you're attached to him, you have everything. It's not the cross plus angel worship. It's not the cross plus ascetic denial. It's not the cross plus religious ceremonies. He says, hold fast to the head. And what had happened in the Corinthian church and what happens in our life is we, we, we follow these trends in Christianity. We follow these trends in these big popular churches. These trends are of, what, of what people are experiencing. We want that. And without knowing it, these trends pull us away from the head, which is Christ, the only one who can transform our heart. That's what's happened in Colossia. He says, don't, and not holding fast to the head, don't lose sight, don't get disconnected from the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. How do we grow as a body? With the growth that comes from who? From God. How do we grow as individuals? With the growth that comes from being tethered to Christ, being transformed by Christ. Both, both the church body and us individually grow from a growth that comes from God. Not from obeying rules based on our own ability to obey rules. Not based on our our ability to be disciplined in our life. Not that those things are unimportant or bad, but they will work against God's plan in our life. If we're being driven, motivated, 
and empowered by ourselves instead of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Okay, now what they're talking about in the elemental spirits of the world, they're talking about science, they're talking about philosophy. Like back then it was philosophies, the science that talked about the air, that talked about the, the land, that talked about the water, that talked about the universe. So, so he's saying right here, if you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, also meaning, so science, biology, and those things that they knew back then, but also demonic and, and uh, satanic forces, so spiritual, the spiritual realm as well. If you've died, remember, that's the picture that we ended with last week, remember? Jesus stripped the clothes off, made the enemy ashamed, like public stripping away, shackled them, and they were following him. That's, the, that's what I taught on last week, the very last verse. He said, if you've been, if, you're, if, you've, if, 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 Christ, if you've died to those things, and that you're no longer bound up by them, they're bound up by Christ. If you've died to those things in the world, why are you living in a way? Why are you submitting again to the regulations of the world, Colossia? Why are you, why are you letting them tell you, don't touch that, don't taste that, do not touch? Referring to these things, all that will perish when they're used. He's saying, that's so silly. Why, why are you determining your value with God, your relationship with God, the love that God has for you based on things that when you eat them, they die any. When you drink them, they die anyway. They perish. You're passing away. These things are according to human precepts and teaching. Why are you going back there? Jesus is saying, Paul's saying, Jesus set you free from the law, free from those things. Why have you gone back? And then verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion or idolatry and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Zero value. Not a little value. Zero value. God, in this passage, and in, in this morning, he's, he's calling us to really trust him. He's calling us to really place all of our hope in him, to really believe that the cross is enough, that Jesus is enough, that he loves me that much, that I am that beautiful to him, that he's creating a story in me, on my heart, that only he can shape, only he can transform, only he has the power to do what he wants to do. And anything I add to it just makes it ugly. Anything I add to it, just it adds black to a beautiful color. Anything that I do to shape my heart so that he will love me, or that I do to shape the hearts of other people so that they will feel loved by God, is just making a mess of what he wants us to do. Because at the heart of legalism is unbelief. Unbelief that God is really doing that with us. Unbelief that God will really do that with us. Unbelief that he is enough, that the cross is enough. Legalism, like I said, it's so dangerous because it looks good. It looks like wisdom to the world. It looks like wisdom. Well, it makes, that makes, I, I, I kind of like that. I like these routines. I like these disciplines. I like doing these things. And they're not necessarily bad if they're empowered by the Spirit. They create opportunity for God to transform us. But when you're doing them so that God will love you more or because you think it will make you more holy then you're making a mess of your heart. You're confusing your heart. The enemy is confusing your heart. 
Paul says it's like idolatry. You're worshiping your ability instead of allowing your heart to trust God's. For the legalist, see, you might, I mean, at River City Church, you know, you might, if you've been from other churches, I was talking to people out in the lobby, they're like, oh, I just love River City Church. My last church I went to, I couldn't wear these certain clothes. I had to wear pantyhose to church. If you didn't, they made you feel less than. At River City Church, it's like freedom. I love it here. They were. They were talking to me about this. I'm, it just seems so foreign to me. You've heard the story when my brother, you know, was in and out of jail, on and off the street. We just started the church. I invited him to come. He's like, I don't have any clothes to wear. Where did he learn that? Legalism. You might not think we are legalistic here, but we are. We are. You see, legalism is not only morality driven by a sense of wanting God to love us, that we're driven to make God love us, or that, that we have to do these things for God to love us. But morality serves the same function for the immoral person, or the free thinker, or the grace Christian. Namely, it serves as an expression of self-reliance and self-assertion. Okay, so what I mean by that is this. So for some of you, you're saying, it's the cross plus my behavior that leads to God loving me. For others of you, you're picking up the cross and taking it to the, 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 the strip club and being like, I, Jesus loves me, let's go, baby, boom. And you're in the strip club with the cross. Who cares how I live? God's love, I'm free, I'm free. Look at this cool expression of Christianity I'm now. I'm like the hipster Christian who smokes weed and does Jesus at the same time. That's legalism. Both of them on both extremes are saying, I don't trust the cross is enough. I don't trust that what Jesus offers is going to give me enough life. So I'm going to add to that with this self-expression. Right? That's legalism. You relying on yourself at the expense of trusting Jesus for life. Now we know we struggle with that side of legalism at RCC. I love it. I love that we had a poker tournament where people brought beer. I love that we have Casino Royale coming up. Why? Because it forces us to trust Jesus. Wait, what about the people who are alcoholics in your church? You shouldn't have alcohol at your events then. No, that's not what Scripture says. What Scripture says is that we're a family and we walk with people who are struggling with brokenness in their life. But we're certainly not going to set the gospel bar according to what people's struggles are. We're not going to create a hurdle for people to walk over, but what we're going to do is we're going to walk with those people, love those people. One side of legalism says to your wife or your girlfriend or boyfriend or Kata if you're Jonathan, honey, I brought you these flowers. Look at these flowers I got for you. And she says, why'd you get, why, why? Well, I, you know, because I have to. Because in order for you to love me, I have to, sh- I have to demonstrate that I love you. But here's some flowers. I, I got these because I have to. In order for you to love me, I have to do this. That's one side of legalism. The other side of legalism says, hey, babe, just want to let you know I slept with three women last night. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we're in a free relationship. We're married. We're committed to each other. I know you love me. 
I mean, this is open and free, right? So I'm going to kind of do what I want, when I want, how I want, with who I want. Because I'm protected by the covenant of marriage. I know you're going to forgive me because you love me. That's the other side. That's insanity. If, if you heard me say, if you heard me promote that as a church, we would probably grow with the wrong people. But that's crazy. You would never say that. No. But that's how we treat God. Legalism cuts out the heart of the disciple and makes what we produce in our effort the priority, the means to holiness or God's approval. In art, if you cut out the heart of the artist, you might get paint on a canvas. You might get notes of music on a sheet of paper. You might get a sculpture that has been formed. But you won't find life. You will not find life that is transforming you and other people. It is God and only God who gives our heart what it needs to reflect his beauty to the world in a way that gives them hope. So the question this morning is, do you believe that the cross is enough? Or do you believe that it's the cross plus your behaviors or your crazy lifestyle that will lead to life. What do you really believe? The heart, the heart of legalism is the lie, is the belief that Jesus isn't enough. Yeah, I know, Jesus. I see you there on the cross. I know you said to die, you've died to give me life and life to the full. I know you say that, but, you know, I just don't think what you've done is enough to cover my sin. So I'm going to add to it a little bit. I know, Jesus, I see you sitting on the cross there. I know you suffered and you died for my sins. I know you're separate from the Father. And I'm so thankful for that. That is awesome. And so I'm going to live like I want to live, just kind of bring you along the way. And yeah, I know you said you'll give me life to the full, but, but really I have these other things that I think will add to that. One pastor said this when it talks about the destructive force of, of pursuing morality over allowing God to transform our hearts. He says, the enemy is sending against us every day the Sherman tank of the flesh with its canons of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. If we try to defend ourselves or our church with the peace shooter rules and regulations, we will be defeated. And when we look like we are winning, even when we look like we are winning on the outside. I mean, let's be honest. How many of us, if we're honest, really believe, really feel like how people perceive us on the outside is what Christianity is really about? How many secrets are hiding in your heart that God has freed you from that you're afraid to tell other people? Because if they found out, if they knew they might not love you. So you keep them on the inside. All the while, allowing the enemy to affect the design and the beauty of what God is trying to do with your life. To free you from those things. 
to expose you to life to the full. You see, Jesus, when he says that in John 10.10, I've come to give life to the full. That's talking about an abundance that we can't imagine. But the pri- just prior to that, in the first part of the verse, it says the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But the way the enemy kills us, the way he steals from us, and the way he destroys us is very subtle. It's like when you're sleeping, he takes a few dollars out of your wallet. When you wake up, you don't even know it's gone. It's a slow bleeding out. That's the way he steals from us. It's not like you're at the ATM machine, you just got all your bank, you know, you got all your savings out, you have thousands, thousands of dollars, you turn around, he's holding, holding you up with a gun, and it's obvious that he's robbing you. That's not how he works. He's conniving, he's thoughtful, he's tricky, and he's fooled many of us into believing that what happens on the outside is what this is really about. What a good, disciplined Christian you are. What a disciple. How much you read the Bible. The posts on Facebook that reflect the glory of the Lord. Your Instagram pictures of Bible verses. The amount of time we go and serve the poor. Even our testimonies at times that point to us instead of God. Do we suffer from legalism in our church? Absolutely. This is a real struggle. A conniving tool in the hand of the enemy. Bible says that he is walking around like a lion waiting for the opportunity to destroy your heart, to consume you, to fool you, to trick you. There's only one defense. There's only one defense against legalism, against the enemy's lies. It says this, all through Colossians, is a great book to center this on, The only defense is to be rooted and built up in Christ and established in his faith. And I talked about this this last week. Established meaning a faith that is growing, that is active, that is pursuing him, that looks different, that is risk-oriented. That's the kind of faith. Again, John Wimber says, how do you spell faith? R-I-S-K. Established in faith in Christ. A growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Strengthened with all power according to God's glory. Might for all endurance and patience with joy. What's the fruit of a disciple? What's the fruit that we see in our life when our heart is being transformed? It's joy. It's thanksgiving. It's excitement. Not burden. Not weariness. Holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourishes and knit together. Grows with the growth that is from God. From God grows with a growth that is from God. I don't know, last week's talk, that was a lot more fun than this. To give and to receive. But if we're serious about being disciples, we have to deal with this. This is a real issue. This is a real issue that we all struggle with. I struggle with it. You struggle with it. All in different ways. Really believing, really trusting that I can't add anything to God's love for me. That he just loves me because I'm his kid. I struggle with really believing that he is creating in me this beautiful story that blesses him and other people. That he's creating in our church something that no other church is doing because of his faithfulness, his love, and his grace. It's hard to believe this, but this is what God is calling us to believe as his disciples. 
will you trust me? Will you have hope in me and me alone? Will you trust me to transform your heart, to lead you on this journey? Will you trust me to lead the church and the other people and your friends, your family, and your children? Do you trust me with them? Do you trust me to be the one who grows their heart, that grows your heart? Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you? That's the question that legalism challenges. Will we trust ourselves or will we trust Jesus? If God is the first and the best artist, the true creator, then will you begin to believe with me this truth that we are designed by him to be his greatest work? The Bible tells us that we are the crown of his creation. The story that he is telling to us is the most important story to be told. That we are designed to be his greatest work. That, the, that, that, that our heart is the canvas. His stage. His voice. His sculpture. One that brings joy and pleasure to him as he's forming us and shaping us. One that brings joy and pleasure and hope to a world that is lost. This will only happen when we allow Jesus to be the transforming power in our life. This morning, Jesus is asking, will you? Will you let me make you beautiful? Will you let me create in you? A clean heart, a pure heart, a righteous heart, a holy heart, a heart that will give you hope and joy and will restore hope and joy in the world. Let's stand. I don't know where you are on the legalistic scale. You're somewhere. It's what we battle, it's what we struggle with. And so in ministry this morning, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if God's going to convict you of going to strip clubs and smoking weed and doing, you know, heroin or what he's going to do on that end of things. He might if you're doing those things. He still loves you. He still has you here. He doesn't change his love for you that you're doing any of those things. Or if on the other end of the spectrum, you are the most disciplined, moralistic, judgmental mother in the world. I mean, and if you had a shirt, it would say, I'm his favorite Pharisee. He still loves you. <laughs> he still cares for you. He still has hope for you. He still wants to transform and redeem you. Or if you're somewhere in between, based on where you are with life, here's the hope of Jesus Christ, is you get to say yes to the cross today. You get to say yes again. I, that's right. What am I doing? What have I been doing? I forgot. Because from time to time, we all forget, don't we? So... Let's come forward and just allow God to minister to us. To remind our heart that he's the creator. That our heart is his canvas. And there's hope for us all. So if our prayer ministry could, team could come forward. Let's just invite, we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and, and transform our heart. I don't know what God's going to do, but that's where we're going to begin. So if our, if our ministry team would come forward. If you would like prayer for physical healing, just go by the cross. If something I've said this morning miraculously inspires you to want to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, to start a new relationship with him, or to recommit to him, kind of go on this side over here. 
And just say that to your prayer minister. It says as we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we're saved, you know, and so in Romans it talks about that. There's no magic to that. But what an opportunity. A hard message. No one likes to be told that they're a legalist. None of us like to be convicted. But even David, a king after God's heart, the example set in the Old Testament, again and again, asked the Lord, come and search me, know me. Where my heart has fallen away from you, turn it back to you. Isaiah talks about the same thing. Jesus invites us. Are you tired? Are you weary? Do you need rest? Come to me. Same thing. If we're tired, weary, and need rest, it's because we're worshiping something other than Jesus. We're carrying a burden that doesn't belong to us, that belongs to him. So why don't we close our eyes? You don't have to come forward. You don't have to close your eyes. (laughs) You don't got to do nothing. God loves you just where you are, right where you are, and how you are right now. But it helps us to know who to pray for. And it's a lot easier for us to pray for you up front but it doesn't mean that God can't minister to you where you are. And we're just going to invite Jesus to come and turn our hearts back to the cross.